My name is Sally Hellingston, and I am the chapter president of Women's Energy Network Colorado. WENCO provides networking and leadership opportunities for women and men working in the energy industry. This podcast is dedicated to sharing stories of leaders who have shown resiliency in their career, their personal life, and even their communities. We hope these episodes inspire resiliency in your own life. So let's do this. Today's guest is Ward Paulzine, CEO at Camino Natural Resources, an independent oil and natural gas company operating in the core of the scoop and merge plays of central Oklahoma. I was fortunate to have met Ward through the Denver Petroleum Club, where he volunteered his time with our mentor program. Ward is one of the kindest, most authentic leaders I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with, and I'm excited that he's here today to share his story with us. Thanks for being here, Ward. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, let's start off by letting our audience know, like do a little skim of your resume because you've had quite the all kind of a wraparound career, so to speak. So I'd love to for you to tell them in your own words. Well, thanks. Well, that's a nice way of saying it. To, to admit maybe I've uh, had too many too many roles and too many jobs, but but I've I've thoroughly loved my career. Uh, I, I began my career. My first job was with BP in Alaska, so working the North Slope, but living in Anchorage. So spent my twenties uh, living there as a person who grew up in Colorado. I went to school mines here, and then have an MBA from Rice in Houston. But I always just loved the outdoors, so that was a big appeal to me. And it was in the early or mid eighties. A downturn similar to like we're having now it was just lucky as can be, quite frankly, to get a job. So it all started with BP, and uh, but I just kind of got more uh, entrepreneurial over time. So did a few things that I'll clearly I'll just skip through. I did a couple of years with the big bad Enron uh, that I don't have on my resume anymore, but uh, that was the late '90s. But just kind of um, kind of evolved into more entrepreneurial kind of roles and also really enjoyed combining engineering and finance together. So I was always trying to do that one way or another. And just, so when you went to school at Mines, you went for engineering, but then you did get your MBA at one point, right? Right. To combine that finance part of it. Exactly. Okay. And actually I did that kind of back to back, which I wouldn't recommend doing in today's era, but, um, but started as an engineer and and wanted to get my technical skills uh, underneath me. Then kind of jumping, uh, uh, jumping through a few of them, but uh, was with a small private 10 people in the, in the Powder River coal bed methane uh, craze of the early 2000s. And that really got me understanding how, how, to, how to run a little oil company. I, I was, certainly wasn't doing that there, but it got to learn from a great guy. And then um, ultimately um, left uh, that and with Interplus started their U.S. division in the early days of the Bakken in 05 and 06. So that was really the, the start of oil. Uh, oil shale plays was the Bakken. So it was kind of fun being in the early days there. And I loved it there, but was starting to get that itch to start a company, but got a great opportunity to be a founding partner and help start Tudor Pickering and Holt. And I thought at the time, it was like, that was too unique. There was lots of great people coming together with a lot of skills and it was really hard to put an investment bank together. So to be a part of that was unique. So uh, left to do that and thoroughly love that. And, but just as I got then kind of past it, about age 50 or so, my decision then kind of became, well, if I'm ever going to start an oil company, now's the time. I don't want to wait till it's too late. So left TPH to form Centennial in the Delaware. And that went well. And we timed that market well. And we were, we were taking that public, but you know, in the perfect world, got the offer you couldn't refuse at the last minute and ended up selling to the Mark Papa led SPAC. So I'm proud that Centennial C 
Dev's uh, is a good, good, strong public company today. And then after that, uh, Reese kind of, kind of restarted with Camino. So this time we went to Oklahoma with, with our focus. So a little bit of uh, kind of jumping around back and forth between publics, privates, finance, technical throughout my career. That's awesome. So going back a little bit, you said you made the comment of you wouldn't have maybe done your MBA back to back with your undergrad. Uh, why is that? Would you have preferred to have more like real life experience first? That's exactly it. I, I think in a, in a perfect world, uh, I would have uh, worked for three or four years before I went and got the MBA just just because you know more and you've got more questions to ask and, and apply that. But I never I wouldn't have necessarily done it any differently back in then. Quite frankly, when I graduated from Mines in 1984, there were no jobs. So I was a poor student and it was, and I really liked finance. So I was like, well, I'll just be a poor student for two more years and see what happens uh, in 1986. So, and obviously as a CEO, that finance background has definitely helped. Where do you think it has helped in other parts of your career before like Tudor Pickering? Walt? Yeah, no, it really helped. Um, it helped me just to kind of direct the career, my career, the direction I wanted it to go. And what I meant by mean by that is, I think as an engineer, you, you, you there's assumed you're going to have those good technical skills, just like a land person. Someone's going to assume you're great at land. But I kind of had, I felt I needed a credibility that that I also knew finance, and you can get that, see, you know, see the pants, work in different jobs. But I think I got to kind of accelerate my career into more, uh, more not just financial jobs, but also technical jobs that required financial kind of interpretation. And if I hadn't had the MBA, I wouldn't have done that as quick as I had. So I don't, I don't recommend everyone necessarily do that, but, but it just depends on what you want to do. But, but absolutely it helped me uh, both just knowledge and, and moving quicker in the direction I wanted to go. Did you always kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit and always know that eventually you wanted to lead a company or is it something that as things happen throughout your technical part of your career, it just kind of naturally progressed that way? It naturally progressed that way. I, I had that I wouldn't say till I even really got into my thirties that did I have a desire to, to really be a little more entrepreneurial and it's neither good nor bad. My time at BP was great and they treated me very well. So there's wonderful ways to do your career, but no, I didn't come out of college thinking someday I was going to start a company. And I'm amazed that I meet people like that now. They were 22 or 25 or 32 who, who are like, oh, that's what I want to do. It's like, great. Uh, but no, it, for me, it evolved. What would you say to those 22-year-old, 35-year-olds that say that they want to do that? Like, what's some really quick advice? That, like, don't. <laughs> <laughs> today, today, it's almost like, don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is it, it, it is be careful because you you we all have selective memory and we remember the successes and we don't remember the failures. And we know we've got so many bankruptcies and things happening right now that it doesn't always work and you could do everything perfect and you just have bad timing. And, and also sometimes great timing can cover up, you know, some mistakes, right? So my point is, is, uh, it's not, not do it, but I, but I would, in a sense, kind of a little bit of take your time, right? There's, I didn't start really doing lots of these entrepreneurial things till I was over 40, right? So it's not that the world doesn't end at 30 or 40 or 50, right? You've got a long time and, and I would just really prepare for it. And, and by that, I think of, well, like I think of the perfect example when I worked for a man called Bill Cagle in, in the Powder River, we were 10 people and I was reservoir engineer and CFO at the same time, right? So, and you got to learn, you know, from somebody else and, and good, bad, you know, all, all of that. And so, there's a lot you can soak in of success stories and stories that don't work out. Right. So my point is go for it, but 
don't feel like you've got to do it tomorrow. Some of the people that I've been interviewing, one of the things that kind of um, stays true and tried through all of these interviews is, you know, take the time to get to know the people you're working with too, because a lot of the times knowing the people in the field is going to help you. And so my question for you would be, how much time did you spend in the field? And do you think that was, how, how valuable do you think that was to help you where you are today? Oh, it was, it was very valuable. I would say really probably the only the first couple of years of my career were kind of like in the field. And, but, but it's super helpful to, to your point, just because you get to understand how oil really comes out of the ground and the, the folks turning the valves are really doing it every day. So just kind of understanding and respecting what they do. And I was lucky. I grew up in small oil field towns in Kansas and Oklahoma, and then ultimately in Colorado, my father worked blue collar out in the field. So that's what I grew up in and just, you can relate, right. And, uh, and have the respect that, that everybody deserves. So that kind of leads us into like your leadership style. Uh, as you know, Women's Energy Network Colorado, we are focusing on uh, providing leadership opportunities, networking opportunities, and educational opportunities for people in the energy industry, not just oil and gas, but across the you know renewables, um, utilities, etc. So one of the things that's you know common through all those sectors of industry is leadership and and being a good leader and sharing styles and sharing knowledge about how you become such a respectable leader. So how do did you become a leader that people want to follow? I don't know that people really do follow me, but it's really like, I, I kind of think they can fire me at any time, right? If I'm not adding to the organization as CEO, then I don't need to be here. Right. And I really, I, I feel that I guess hopefully what I do is, is being really transparent, right. We, we about how our company's doing and, and explaining to everyone. I, one thing I, I kind of do COVID's kind of changed the way we do it a little bit, but I always did court. I do quarterly, you know, state of the unions to the, to everyone and explain uh, how we're doing in the company. Right. And, and then things that I'm worried about, you know, what am I focused on every day to let people know, you know, what I'm doing, you know, in the office and I'm looking at oil prices and hedging and stuff that not everybody else is going to be looking at, but just to give everybody a full breadth of, of what we have to do as a company. So how we've kind of changed that a little bit during COVID and not all of us being in the office, I now write a, an email every couple of weeks. That's just a business email. And, and cause I'm, I'm watching rig counts and all these kind of things that not everybody else is. Right. So it's just, I, I think they're normal, but I've, I find out that, you know, the guys out in the field aren't watching that. Right. So, so it's helpful to give people the context of, of where we're at. I think also it's, it helps, especially in these private companies, you got to have a vision. It might not be the right one, but, but you've got to have a plan and everybody knows what it is. Like for us in Oklahoma, it, when we got in three years ago, give or take, there were already 40 private equity companies in the scoop and the merge. Why do you need number 41? Well, there wasn't anybody trying to be the multi-billion dollar, really big private guy. So it's, so it's like, that was our plan from day one and everybody knew it. And we're, we're going to be the biggest one. There's lots of reasons. I think economies of scale are, are benefit. So I think it's having that vision that it's pretty clear. This is what, this is what we want to create. And everybody knows that right up from in the, in the front. How do you balance uh, your communication with, with your goals in the sense of if you haven't fully formed a goal, how do you still keep open communication and then accidentally say something wrong if your goals change? Or I think that's something that I think a lot of people struggle regardless of what level they are in leadership. 
Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great one. It, it's, um, I think I try to, I try to be like one thing I always also say too, is I reserve the right to change my mind at any time. And what I really mean by that is, you know, the, the engineer in me data comes in every day and, and you've got, you've got to look at it and decide maybe what I thought before is no longer true because something changed. Right. So I'm trying to add some flexibility to those goals, right. That they're not super, you know, concrete. So you need them. It's fine. It's finding the right balance, right. Between concreteness and some flexibility around that. So, um, that's what I recommend to people too. It's whether it's your personal goals or professional, I find things change and don't, don't be, um, embarrassed or changed that that's not what I want to do anymore. Or, or that, that I'm shifting, you know, a little bit of my direction of, of either what's with the company or, you know, like I say, or personal goals too. Things change. How do you find the people that you can trust, especially like during COVID when people are working at home and have maybe some wonky schedules dealing with kids and things like that. How do you find people that you can trust to do their job and do it well? Yeah, it's tough to, to, to do that. I think it, it starts for me. It's like we have give or take 65 employees, right? So I, I wish I was talking to all 65 every day, but clearly I'm not. But I think, you know, our, our next kind of group of leaders of, you know, seven to 10 folks, it's really working closely with them to, so that they appreciate and we're all on the same page of, of our requirements to do a great job, right? Our standards, really, whether those standards are technical or uh, ethical and, you know, then the flexibility that, that, hey, this is our what we're going to do and this is the standard we set. And then those folks have got to set that exact same standard, you know, to everybody that reports to them. So it, it's it's definitely through that those uh, kind of levels as it goes down. And you have to trust, quite frankly, that, you know, the, the, the folks that have been hired in the land department who by our land manager are going to have those exact same standards. And that person has to make sure that occurs. So it, it's definitely kind of setting the tone. Uh, but it's also, you know, I try to do my best to, to talk to everybody and just, you know, barge into people's office and waste their time to for have them tell me, you know, what's going on. Right. I just want to hear it directly, directly from them. And I think that also sets helps hopefully set the standard of, of what we're going to do. And by standards, I don't mean we're going to work 60 hours a week. I, by, by me, the standard just means quality, the quality of your output of whatever it is, you know, we've got to be really good at it. And, and so that's when I think of standards and, and then ethics. When I think when people see us dealing with partners or see me interacting with people outside of our department, or, I mean, outside of our company, that uh, hopefully I'm showing that, that we are, you know, very straightforward and ethical in what we do. And then that's, that's what we better, all of us better do. You know? Leadership in the oil and gas sector specifically is typically been male dominated. And now more and more women are starting to step up into the C-level roles. Still, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I do see it happening more and more, even in my short time in this, in the industry. How do you feel that um, you have been helping to lead women to those roles? And is there a big difference between leading women and men? Uh, I don't think there's a big difference, honestly. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's wrong or right. It's just my opinion. I I th and I completely agree with you as, as a person, uh, like my wife and I just have one child and it's, she's a daughter, it's a girl, a daughter, she's 20. And so I really relate to that. I also really grew up uh, with a single mom, really. My parents were divorced pretty young. And even when they weren't divorced, it was a single mom raising my brother and I. So I have always 
um, lived uh, with, quite frankly, a strong woman figure in my life. So, I, and I saw, you know, a single mom raising us, working full time as a secretary, you know, and, and all that, what it took, right? So, it's like everybody's got the skills. She didn't get to go to college, but she would have been a great engineer. You can just tell, right? So, um, I think it's appreciating that is important. I think, um, we, we at our company, have always, we've always been very flexible. It, it's, you know, especially during COVID right now, it's if you want to work at the office, great. If you don't want to work at the office, no problem. And, and just appreciating, especially, obviously, still more of the child raising tasks uh, go to the woman, whether you're both working or not. Right. So just giving that flexibility is uh, important. And, and, and I think that that's a big one in my mind. It's also, uh, I was just thinking, looking the other day, it's not a goal, but of all of our office employees, our companies right down the middle were 50, 50 women and men. And, and we didn't try to do that, to be very honest. It's just the way it worked. Right. And so, so I think we've set up, hopefully that implies there's a culture that, that, uh, when someone, a woman in particular interviews kind of sees that, right. And, and sees that, Oh, you know, there's a lot of other women working here. So this must be, you know, okay. Right. So I think it's, 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 um, I don't know if that's leading, but it's just certainly setting a, I look at it as just setting a culture and, uh, of an environment that, that feels, you know, comfortable. So Ward, let's go a little bit into, um, the mentorship side of your life. Um, as I mentioned in your intro, I met you through the DPC mentor program. I'd love for our listeners to hear a bit about how mentorship how important it is to you, um, how you've kind of treated it throughout your career, whether it's through in your personal life or in your, your career, how you've used mentors. And then how did the, why did you say yes to the, the mentor program for the DPC and how has being a mentor through that program helped you in your career? Ah, there's a lot there. I know. I'm sorry. I should ask those individually, but <laughs> that's okay. I think, uh, I've never, as, as a kind of mentee, I've never participated in a formal process. So, so when you invited me to do that with the D, DPC, it was great from the other side as the mentor, I think I might've asked you, are you asking me to be the mentee or the mentor? Cause I'll, I'll go <laughs> I either actually think you did. <laughs> I'll go either way. Um, cause I, n I never had a formal kind of mentee program, even back in the day at, at a large company like BP didn't have that. And so mine have been more ad hoc and, and, it, and honestly, it really starts for me at, at home, right? My, my mother is my best mentor in a sense that I didn't get career advice, but I just got to watch, you know, how to, how to raise a family and how to, how to work hard. And that was the same. She had left the farm in Missouri. So I spent lots of my childhood on my grandparents' farm and just watching, really a subsistence farm and, and how you make it work, right. And how you work hard and then you get to play, but you don't play until after you finish your work. Right. And there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, you, you get it done. There's no plan B. Right. <laughs> so, uh, that, that, those were in a sense, maybe not traditional, but they were my mentors from that respect. Once then kind of in more of a, a career perspective. I've really just kind of reached out to people to, to just get advice. And I, I've, as I got older and a little more confidence and just inviting people to lunch, you know, and let's go to breakfast or lunch, just your time. Just, I just like to hear what you're doing. Right. And, and, and learn something from that. And how are you handling this, this, you know, this downturn or upturn, or why are you going, going forward over here and you're not going forward over there, those kind of things. And just through osmosis kind of learn a few things. And then 
Also learned a lot from uh, Bill Cagle, who's started the the Powder River Company I worked for. And just to see how you, how all the pieces that you've got to bring together to, to make it work. So mine have been a lot more ad hoc. So when given the opportunity to be in a more structured role, I thought, this is great. I wish that happened when I was that age, I would have jumped all over it. So, um, so part of me going back or, you know, of, 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 been willing to do that was just to give back. Right. And to be, I don't know that I have very great advice to be very honest, but just listen. Right. And, and okay. Yeah. That kind of sounds like something I went through and here's what I did, but, but just listening is, is very helpful. And I, I really got a lot out of it just because it, I think I get almost in the same sense, what the mentee can get out of it. You just meet so many people, you know, they're in a whole different parts of the business and maybe it's midstream or upstream or it's accounting or it's land geology. It's all not what what I do every day. So just to hear it, what other people do just makes you smarter. Uh, and you just, cause you really got to know, you need to know the business, all parts of the business. You gotta be an expert in something, but you really need to know how it all fits together. And that, that really helped. And I feel like I heard you kind of just say right there that you were learning from them too. So like even at the top of your game, so to speak, you're still learning something from others, which I think is really crucial in a good leader too. Uh, well, yeah, no, no doubt. I'm, I'm learning every day. Yeah. yeah some and, things you don't want to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I kind of, one theme I've always kind of had with folks who kind of report into me, it's like, my job isn't to tell you what to do. Your job is to tell me what to do. You, you're the expert at what you do, not me. It's the buck stops here. I get that, but I've got to incorporate everything. And, and you're, you're much better at that than I am at this certain, you know, task or certain skill. So you need to tell me what to do and then let's agree hopefully and we'll go do it. Right. But it's not wait for me to tell you what to do is not, not my style. Yeah. You're a part of the first Tuesday group of, and is it CEOs or is it CEOs and CFOs or any C-level CEOs. Is it worth getting involved in things like that and other organizations like Women's Energy Network, DPC, SPE, GPA? Um, what do you think the value in those groups bring to you? Oh, I think it's big time. So, I, I, yeah. So, I, like for me, that's that's right. The first Tuesday of the month, that group gets together. There's also a thing called the first Thursdays, which is CFOs, um, and and then various organizations you mentioned. I, I am, I push it all the time. I encourage all of our folks and all my colleagues to please go do that. Whatever your group, you know, if you're in land, you know, get to the AAP, I mean, uh, you know, get, get to all the land kind of things and, and encourage, encourage that because I think that it's helpful one, one to just network within your own, you know, your land group or your geology group. That's helpful because you're going to learn some you know, tricks of the trade that, that there might be applying in a, at a different company. Then it's also helpful to get beyond that too, right? Just, which is what I thought was so cool about the DPC program and other, you know, the things that Koga has going as well, right? Where you get to interact with people from completely different departments and completely different companies. And that, and that has its own other benefit, right? Of just appreciating uh, that, how, how this business ties together and you're just going to be a much more valuable person to get hired, quite frankly, or to, to go up in your organization. If you, if you grasp all the pieces of the pie and, and how it, how it gets mixed. Networking is something that I value and I think is cool because Kat Campbell, we talked about it a little bit before we started recording, but Kat Campbell was in the same, um, TPC mentor program and she was one of your mentees and now works with you, which I think is a super awesome example of how it all kind of comes together. 
can you talk a little bit about if knowing you in advance helped her right. with getting the job? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, I, I think that that's, wasn't the plan I think for her or me, right. When we both went into that program, cause it was four years later, I believe approximately probably that, that she joined us. So yeah, it, it's, it's super helpful because from my, from my seat of that is, uh, you know, I got to spend time with a person and see the passion uh, in particular that Kat had. And I don't need to go reference. I've spent enough time with that person that I already know if that that person's going to fit culturally. Uh, you know, I always try to think of, of, of really two broad ways of of, of thinking about someone that we would bring on culturally, do they fit? And then second, you know, technical skills I don't, and whatever that technical skill they bring to it. And I don't mean one's first or one second, they both got to check the box, right? So you, you can see both of those things because you spend a lot of time with someone and that's, and networking helps that. I don't think the goal for me of networking isn't to go find the next person to join our team, nor should it be from the flip side. I think, oh, I need to go network because I can find it so I can get a job. Well, sometimes that is true actually in times like today, people need to be networking because to see what roles are available. So don't be ashamed of that. You know, that's what we need to do. But even in the good times, you need to be doing that because it won't always be the good times, right? And, and then to have all those connections that you can draw upon is is critically important. So it's a long-term kind of benefit, not short-term. Yeah. And I think that uh, our industry is small enough that you need to build those relationships that carry you through the good times and the bad times. So I like, I like that you said that. Don't just worry about it during the bad times. Make sure that you're making those connections during the good times too. Yeah, exactly. And you got, and, and it's fun. It's like, I, I am i I'm very much an introvert person. The older I've gotten, the more extrovert I think I've gotten, but I have to make myself do that. That is not my, you know, if I'm left alone, I'm going to listen to some music or read a book. <laughs> so I've kind of had to force myself to go do those things. Usually at a party, I'm the one standing in the corner, you know? So, um, I, that's not something I was born with. And, and I have to, even at this stage and age, I've got to like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here. So you just have to do it, you know, and, and people appreciate it actually. So kind of continuing on that line of advice, like the networking piece and making yourself do it in good times and bad. What other um, types of advice would you give to our listeners as far as uh, right now during the downturn, things that they can be doing to improve themselves and make themselves a better hire when it picks back up again? Yeah, it, it's... Uh it's hard. I appreciate it, especially during this downtime, but I feel you've always got to be learning. And so I would be thinking about how, how can I, quite frankly, whether you're unemployed today or underemployed or something like that, how can a year from now, what will make my resume look better? And, but also what do I want to do too? I'm not meaning to, to do something you don't, you know, you don't enjoy, but, but, add a skill. And that could be like, I, I think back into a time uh, 20 years ago when I was in a role that quite frankly, wasn't that challenging. I was getting something out of it, but I could tell this isn't the long-term spot for me. And I've got a little extra time, quite frankly, it's not pushing me. So I ended up getting a CFA, a financial analyst thing. And I did it at night, took a couple of years. Did I really need that for my career? No, but it, it kept my brain in going. And as a technical person, it added one more financial kind of credibility to the resume. And that could be just, you know, in today's world, it could be taking, you know, the free classes that are online and something, you know, and if it's, if, if you're a land person, maybe grab a couple of accounting classes for free, you know, and there. And, and so just, I think, because we are going to come out of this and you want to, I think, a 
you want to be able to answer someone's say if you're interviewing six months from now or three months from now or a year from now, what did you do during COVID? What, what, what did you do during the downtime? How did you make yourself better? And I think you need an answer for that. And, and people appreciate that the times are tough. The answer doesn't mean, you know, that, that I had a, maybe a traditional job, but you need to kind of point out that he, these are the skills I gained during that time proactively. Right. So, and if it's specifically to our industry, I think it, it, again, I keep, I know I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but just learn other pieces of it, right? You don't need, if you're the, you know, you're the accounting expert, you don't need to be the land expert, but learn a little land, right? Just figure out a way you can do that, right? At least know the buzzwords, know what they mean and be able to have a competent discussion around it and how it fits into your area of expertise, but add a skill, however you can do that. I think that's great. So now with things being a bit slower, I think it's a perfect opportunity to kind of reach across the the hall, so to speak, and ask that land person out for lunch if you're an accountant or, you know, start forming those relationships even internally if you're working to, to be able to get that cross knowledge too. So I know we've talked about technical skills. What is the value as an employer uh, for people to have soft skills? Yeah, it's super critical I, in the sense of it depends, it depends on your, what you want to do in your career, right? I think if you want to end up kind of leading and, and kind of running a department or, or beyond that, you've got to have the soft skills. Not everyone needs it. It's okay. You know, that, that if that's not you, that's perfect. We, we, that, that's okay too. We need great skilled people at what they do. But if you, if you intend to kind of have a broader career, you're going to have to have them. Right. And, and, and I think, well, how do you get them? You know, that that's, that's the hard question. Right. And, and again, it goes to, I think watching others, um, you see that person who's like, I like working for that person. And you see the other person, I don't like working for that person. We all have those people in our lives. It's like, okay, well, what's, what don't you like and make sure you don't do that. Right. And, and what's missing under that. And, and, but I think you got to think about it. It is what's missing there and what's additive over here that you do like. Right. And, and repeat them and, and see, it takes time. You, you're like, I know certainly I've, I've whatever skills I have, certainly I didn't, I wasn't born with them and didn't have them early. So it, it's an evolution and, and paying attention really to, to what you, what you see. And would you kind of apply that to, you know, we're talking specifically about leaders, but would you apply that to companies you're looking to work with as well? Like figure out, do a little research, I guess, and figure out which company best fits your culture. I know we talked about that earlier, um, but how, how would you figure out which companies most align with your own values and the own culture that you want to be a part of? I think that's a great question. It's a great, and it's a direct parallel. It's exactly right. As we think, you know, what companies do we want to partner with and, and what, who do we want as a, you know, non-op working interest partner and who do we want to be non-op with and who do we not want to be right. And, and so you, yeah, it, part of its reputation. I mean, before I get into any, any deal with anybody, I've made a lot of phone calls to, it's like, okay, one or two phone calls. I'm going to find somebody that I trust has had some interaction with this company and your reputation is, you know, the old adage it's, it's, you know, it takes forever to build one, but you can destroy it overnight is absolutely true. And everybody has long memories. So, uh, think about that. Um, so 
Yeah, I think about that a lot, right? And and there's certainly partners that we don't want to be partnered with and do our best not to be there and, and vice versa. There's some great partners, right? So trying to trying to find those similar cultures. Yeah, it's how do you figure that out? It's sometimes you don't know until you're until you're deep into something and then you'll, you know, then oh shouldn't have done that or or no, that turned out great. And you just chalk that up to a lesson learned. That's exactly. Great. Chalk yeah. it up to a lesson learned and move on. Sometimes and, they're really expensive or really hard lessons, ex- but <laughs> exactly. And and you don't forget. Mm-hmm. You don't forget those ones that go bad. So one of the things that we had on the list of things to talk about was you've worked in multiple basins. And my question for you was what basin did you like working in the most? So if you don't mind just listing the ones that you did work in for our audience and then answering however you would like. <laughs> That's one thing I love about our industry is the ability to work all kinds of basins, both, both, both underground and above ground and live different places. Right. So, and, and that's something I am thrilled that this industry has offered me. It started, it, I think you always have a soft spot for, for the first place you work. And for me, that was in Alaska with BP. I spent my entire twenties there and lived there a long time. So being on the North slope and being an outdoors person, like this is incredible. I get to be out here in the Arctic, you know, it's just amazing. I can't believe such luck, you know, so that, that was fun. And then the underground that's such the you know biggest field in the United States and things like that. So that had its appeal. Uh, a, a lot of appeal too was uh, with Interplus and the Bakken because it was the, the, the Bakken was the first oil shale really that took off. The Barnett had already taken off in the gas world before that. So to be at the early stage of just shale and, and what, what we thought at the time that turned out right and what we thought turned out way wrong, you know, so that's really cool. Uh, obviously Centennial and the Delaware being able to, to kind of one thing we got right, we got there a little early before other people and that, that, that turned out great. So that has that one today in Oklahoma, it's an unloved basin, but really any basin other than the Permian is unloved. <laughs> so, uh, that's fine. I'll, I'll gladly play the underdog, you know, and because we, we see lots of great, great things there. So, so the current one has an appeal, but what I've thoroughly enjoyed, you know, around my career, whether it was like Tudor Pickering, it was great. We got to work our clients were in every basin. So I worked, you know, Wyoming and Utah and the DJ and San Juan and, and the Permian and offshore international, all those kind of things. Uh, and, and that, and I've been lucky enough to then in the more operational roles and part of my career to kind of move into these different basins. And, and what you learn in one is directly applicable uh, to, to another. Everybody has a theory on what plays are the best, right? Like every company and, and where they want to be. And there are other theories about, you know, like they really they peak and then they either stay steady or they just dry up. What, in your humble opinion, do you think is the play that is going to last the longest? Well, the, the Permian is, and I know anybody would answer that. So that's not a unique uh, answer. It's just scale. It's just bigger, you know, and the, so for that reason, and, and whereas some of the others are more mature and that don't have, you know, it's not like they're going away tomorrow, but they just don't quite have the upside anymore. They did in that evolution of a play when it's trying to figure out what it is and then kind of peaking in its kind of capabilities. And then as it kind of matures and then dies out over time. Right. So it is the Permian and that's with scale, but that doesn't mean the other basins don't have their role and their fit. Cause I, I think long-term are, uh, we do have a lack of inventory in this industry and I'm talking 10 years from now, not, not one year from now. So they're going to need the Bakken in Oklahoma and the DJ as well, even though they're not as loved for various reasons, you know, as the Permian. So we can't have all of our eggs in, in, in one basket to, to kind of fuel what our country needs. 
And that kind of um, leads into, and not to make this political, but the DJ is obviously going to be very difficult to work and it has been, and it will continue to be so even this year with whatever ballot they or measure they decide to put on the ballot. <laughs> I don't know if they've actually finalized one or whatever. Um, but what would you say to people looking to find like the 30 somethings or, or people that are, are ready to start their own business and their own um, company? What would you say is the most important thing to look at when selecting where they want to operate? Is it politics? Is it longevity? What is it do you think is the key for finding that space? Great question. Cause you have to balance them all. But I, but first of all, it's, it's, I, I kind of simplicity look at things underground and above ground. And first has to be below ground. It has to be the rock and the quality first. And then, because if you just don't have that, it doesn't matter what happens above ground. It's not going to be economic long-term. And if you're going to have to sell something someday, no one's ever going to buy it from you. Right. So it starts technically. Then it's, then I start to look at, at above ground, right. And how uh, amenable is either Colorado, here or, you know, or Wyoming, you know, across the border, uh, open to, to oil and gas. So, so those are important, but, but I, I, one kind of advice I had back as a, as a banker with helping people sell their companies or, and, and build their companies. It's like, we can't, any one of us, we don't affect oil prices. Uh, you know, we don't affect these macro things that guide our business, but you got to predict where that, that macro train is going. And then you got to put your company on the track in front of it and get run over. Right. So, but, but you, so it's predicting where the train's going and try to get in front of it. Right. So, um, and, and what, by what I mean by that is, you know, it's, it's, it, Colorado's difficult as, as a person who grew up here, I would love to be operating in Colorado, but I'm not going to do it to be very blunt, uh, the, the up above ground risks are only get more difficult over time. doesn't mean if I'm already there, I would make the best of it and you can have a, a good company there. I'm not saying get out. It just means it's a tough place to come into, but you know, there's a pro and a con to every basin we have, right. And then nothing's perfect, even the Permian, right. So it's not as great as the market thought it was through you. It's still great, but it's, you know, it, it, everything with time, you figure out the difficulties as well. So we'll, we'll get through them all. And, and we need all the above, not only all types of energy, but all the above of all of our basins. Cause I just don't think we have enough, even with changing less oil demand 20 years from now, that's going to be absolutely true, but the, but it's still going to be a massive number that, that we need to fill. Well, I think that's the end of everything that I had down, but is there anything that I have neglected to ask that you wanted to touch on? I think I would just add that, that it's, um, I mean, you have to hit the, the kind of elephant in the room of today with, with our difficult environment, right. And destroy all industries, right. Except for a unique few during COVID times, but, uh, you know, w we will be back and I have a lot of strength or, or, or confidence in the strength of our industry. And we will be a smaller industry going forward, but we're badly needed and we do a great job of what we do. So, you know, I would hold your head high and, and, and keep up the great work. Right. And, and it, it's a struggle, uh, but you've got, to, we, we've survived it before. I think one, I, I feel I'm a resilient person and, and, up until now, since I've been around a while now, the, the, it, people, I get the question, is this downturn the worst or, and we used to say, well, the mid eighties, that was worse. No, I disagree now. This is the worst, <laughs> right? So you can step back and think, yeah, we're going through the worst time in 50 years. We really are. 
for our industry and but we will come out of it and we've we've all personally done it before and we've had a hard time and we've figured it out and we survived right so and times got good and it will get good again there's no question about about that to me Okay. So we do this with every, uh, interview. We do like a fun fact speed round. So I'm going to ask you a list of questions and just say whatever comes to your head. <laughs> do you prefer texting or talking? Talking. What's your favorite concert to date? My favorite concert to date is, and I'm big into music and that's how my daughter and I have really bonded. We're both big into it. So to me, my favorite ones to date is when I went with my daughter. It, it wasn't her first one, but it was her first one as more of an adult, like at age 15. We went to Hozier, who I did not know hardly anything about. And and we was at Red Rocks and she was probably the youngest person there. And I was probably the oldest person there. <laughs> so it made me feel good in the sense that she was, uh, you know, mature in her choices of, of music and that maybe I wasn't too mature. I was still immature in you my choices. Still hip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's one, but it's, it's highly influenced uh, by doing it with my daughter. That's awesome. If you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? Don't be so hard on yourself. You know, it, it, time heals a lot of things and, you know, you don't have to hit everything you decided to hit. You don't, you know, on the day you thought you needed to hit it. Right. We, we all, we all strike out a few times. Yeah. I like that. We all strike out a few times. That's good. Uh, what are three words you would use to brand yourself? Hardworking, uh, resilient, um, Flexible. And then what gives you resilience? Seen it before in, in the sense that um, people uh, can think of family, friends who've, uh, who've had a very wonderful life and did it either with less education or less money or less anything. It, it yeah, it, it, there's lots of ways to be happy. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us. Make sure to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss the next episode. And if you liked this one, please rate and review it. And don't forget to keep in touch with us on social media by searching When Colorado on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And until next time, stay resilient.